The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And as I mentioned earlier, if you weren't here yet, this is the last class for our summer course on the Buddhist teachings on the Noble Eightfold Path. And uh, the summer or I'm sorry, the fall class will begin on Monday, um, September 14th. And we'll have the registration for that relatively soon. And as I mentioned in the guided meditation, you know, it, we've been talking about uh, Buddha's path of awakening, not just in terms of the eight spokes of the path, but also in terms of this three-way division where we understand, you know, and this is, this is so important to understand that the spiritual path is not something that we appreciate at the end when we get the goal, but it feels right all along, as the Buddha said in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. So it's really important that we develop a taste for the rightness of the path. And that taste is here and now, it isn't. And without cultivating that sense of, oh yeah, this feels right, tastes right, has the flavor of freedom to it, without that feedback, how are we going to find our way? So we have to really learn to discern that flavor and follow that flavor of freedom. And although it may be more subtle than the pleasure we get when we get a nice massage or the pleasure we get when we have a good laugh with a friend, I mean, those pleasures are real and we would say relatively gross or concrete as experiences. So initially, the happiness of sila feeling like, you know, I might have made mistakes even earlier today and certainly in the past, but right now I'm really living in alignment with this value of non-harming, as best I can tell, or at least to, to a large degree. I'm not stealing, I'm not harming others, I'm not violating people's rights or you know, directly oppressing people as much as I can understand in obvious ways. And that feels good. Like, not so much it's a good feeling, but it's the absence of being tormented by our not-so-skillful actions in the world. And to whatever degree the mind, the heart is gathered in the present moment, not distracted, not scattered and dissipated. There's a flavor to that being present. And we can learn, you know, it takes time to really learn to detect how skillful it is to be present, how it feels good, feels right, and how distraction always feels a little off. You know, when my mind is hungry reading the news, or hungry, you know, following some obsession, whatever it might be, 
I can now detect that tightness both in the mind and then expressed also in the body. And without that, why would we change? Without detecting that this path, this way of practicing really delivers, excuse me, the freedom that the heart seeks. We, we're not going to really have the, the steadfastness to walk the path. And of course, the most subtle, but also most profound happiness is the happiness of non-clinging. The heart, the mind free of craving, free of being pushed around by its likes and dislikes. Not that there aren't likes and dislikes, but the mind's not confused by them. I may know there's ice cream in the freezer, but I'm not confused by that idea or that perception, oh yeah, there's ice cream in the freezer but it doesn't throw my heart, mind, and body out of balance. Or something scary, oh, I gotta do this tomorrow, I don't know what I'm gonna do. That perception, that remembering this difficult thing I gotta do tomorrow isn't confusing to the mind. So this is the happiness of wisdom. The mind, the heart that's not burdened and confused by what comes and goes in our experience. And so, this, you know, I mentioned at the end of the guided sit that when we're sitting in our meditation, our formal meditation, we really want to sense that we're walking the path. And the way to sense that is feeling the purification. You know, the word purification has a sense of burning something up. One of the beautiful similes I, I really appreciate from the Buddha. He gave a talk um, <clears throat> back and uh, back in the day and he used the simile to describe the path and he, he said imagine a ship, a big boat, uh, pulled up onto land and it's been sitting there through the different seasons, all the sun, all the humidity, the rain, the wind. And over those months and years, the rigging and the sails, the ropes, right? <clears throat> Everything started to rot, slowly, gradually. And kind of an interesting simile for the Buddha. You know, it's not some beautiful image of the path, but something like uh, mindful awareness, this wisdom awareness, is causing these habits of greed, hatred, and delusion to rot. They're not, they're not being fed, they're not being strengthened, they're wearing themselves out. They're not being fed. And they're starting to fall apart through non-use, through the bright, you know, power of that wise, kind presence, which just Ignorance, you know, and all the animated forces or expressions of ignorance, like hatred and fear and greed, distractedness, they just don't hold up when they're seen with the stable, kind, non-judging awareness. They get purified. So purified isn't like, it isn't so much that I'm making myself special, you know, I'm becoming a wise Buddhist or something like that. It's that we're 
stabilizing present moment awareness because over time ignorance and all the active forms of ignorance just don't make sense in the light of that wise presence, that wise and kind presence. And so I like that word purifying. So we bring this stable, kind, clear presence to this part of our life we call sila, ethical conduct, how I'm getting along, how I'm relating, how I'm speaking, how I'm earning my living, how I might be complicit in the suffering of others, complicit in oppressive um, systems that take advantage of other humans and other creatures on the planet. Oh, this is how it is, right? So we, we pay attention. We ask questions. We feel. We see. And it affects our heart. And part of this attention really comes from the humility that it's not like we often think in terms of moral conduct that, you know, if I'm not doing some of the obvious things like killing and stealing, then I'm good. And so I don't really have to pay attention. But because of this, like I was saying, there's some real positive enlivening juice, this happiness that comes, we're always interested in this question, in this uh, development, let's say, of non-harming. We don't imagine we get to the end of it. It's like we can always, it's, we'll never get to the end of it. That's actually the pro appropriate way to, to think about it. So that it's, we always have an incentive now, in this moment, to be attentive to how now, in this moment, I'm in alignment with non-harming or I'm not in alignment with non-harming. And even if the initial sense is I'm in alignment with non-harming, where we continue to be attentive because there may be things we haven't yet seen that we can abandon, you know, ways that we're still participating in harm that we're not aware of. So we're always willing to be sensitive. We always have a, an incentive, in a sense, to pay attention. Same with samadhi, the happiness of concentration or the stability of present moment awareness, steadiness, non-distractedness, and really using and by bringing attention to what the mind is doing and how the mind is relating to its own thoughts, for example, like relating with attachment, relating with greed, like I have a thought about, oh, I could I could buy this. And if there's that clinging that comes with greed, then awareness, wisdom and awareness will notice what a sacrifice. I'm sacrificing calm in order to inhabit greed. Well, we do that when we're not aware, but when wisdom and awareness is there, we would never sacrifice tranquility for the crunch of greed. Right? Nobody, nobody consciously, intentionally chooses suffering. <laughs> but, but how many times today have each of us done that? Chosen to inhabit greed, you know, to spin with greed or lust instead of 
the stability of present moment awareness. Well, we did it because the mind wasn't watching the mind. Or we haven't been, we weren't bringing that balanced, kind, clear, present moment awareness to this ecology of our own heart and mind. What's the mind knowing? How's the mind relating? Am I planting seeds for more stress or not? And wisdom. This is the third area. And again, we want to develop a taste for this happiness of wisdom. Just like we want to develop a taste for the happiness of sila, non-harming, and the happiness of samadhi, the stability of present moment awareness, continuity of present moment awareness, we want to cultivate uh, the capacity to recognize the happiness of freedom, the happiness of peace. The heart is peaceful because it isn't entangled with any kind of, it isn't in a conflictual relationship with the present moment. Instead, it's in a peaceful relationship with the present moment. doesn't mean that the mind likes the present moment, always. Even if it's an unpleasant present moment, the mind still won't be in a conflictual relationship with the unpleasantness because the conflictual relationship doesn't help anybody. This difficult moment is already here. It's already feeling like this. Why would I add that second arrow of not liking it and getting identified with the not liking and then acting on the not liking by getting, let's say, tight in the moment? Who is that going to help? It doesn't help anybody. So wisdom understands that sometimes the moment is pleasant, sometimes moments are unpleasant, sometimes they're neutral. And it understands that, that it's it always feels good in this subtle way, this subtle way we call peace. The peace of not being in a conflictual relationship with what's happening in the moment, but rather being in a peaceful or balanced relationship. Because then when we're in a peaceful and balanced relationship, with, in other words, a wise relationship with the present moment, then we'll know whether there's anything that can be practically done to alleviate whatever might be unpleasant without adding more tension or adding more difficulty. If there's something to be done, well, then we do it. The body, mind, this life doesn't. If there's nothing to be done, because sometimes things are unpleasant, difficult, and in that moment, there's nothing to do right then and there. And so if there's nothing to be done, there's nothing to be done. But wisdom knows not to lose balance, whether there's something that can be done or whether this is one of those situations where there isn't anything to do. Wisdom keeps remembering like the value of balance, the, the value of dispassion or equanimity or choosing not to be in a conflictual relationship. And this is what awareness, wisdom and awareness really purifies so on this grosser level of our life, we're living with non-harming. And on this middling level of life, the level of the activity of the mind, right? The happiness of present moment awareness, the non-distractedness, this gathered, stable, 
present moment awareness. And in the most subtle, we're learning to taste and follow the happiness of non-clinging, the happiness of non-reactivity, the peace of a mind that is knows how to stay in balance no matter what's coming and going. It has the wisdom or the view, the understanding that understands being in balance is the way. So while uh, last week we talked, um, last couple of weeks I was talking about samadhi as wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. These three make up that category we call samadhi, this third of the path that's about stabilizing and uh, developing the continuity of present moment awareness. And uh, one way that we reflect on that coming together is, and like I was saying, it, it's like the flavor, the positive or ple um, mental pleasure of samadhi. And really, like the taste, that, that's what really helps us Oh yeah, this feels good. This stability of present moment awareness. And when it's a little off, it's like you're tasting something. Oh, something's wrong. Too much salt or not enough of this. It's a little bit like that with samadhi. There's over time with practice that stability and continuity of present moment awareness has a particular taste that becomes very familiar. Just like distractedness or the mind being discombobulated or scattered or fragmented or reactive or agitated, that has a particular flavor too. And wisdom knows the difference. That is a sign of the deepening of practice is when wisdom is around and it knows the difference between a mind that's scattered. Oh yeah, my mind's really scattered right now. And oh, my mind is really solid. The present moment awareness, the continuity of present moment awareness, it's got some power and it feels good. So this is something we can ask ourselves. A lot of times, you know, people will ask me, you know, how do I know if I'm making progress in practice? Well, one way for each of these three parts of the Eightfold Path, the sila, the happiness of non-harming, samadhi, the happiness of that stability and continuity of present moment awareness and panya, the wisdom happiness, the happiness of non-clinging. It's like, do you know the difference between the happiness of non-harming and the happiness or in the unhappiness of remorse? You know, where you're kind of not following that value of non-harming and the heart is tight because I've taken something I shouldn't have taken, or I said something to somebody to hurt them, and now it feels like this here in my heart, right? So do we know the difference between that nice quality when we look back on the day or back on the week and there's nothing haunting us because we didn't do anything really stupid the last day or so, and we feel good, appropriately good, for not having acted out in ways that 
have caused others or ourselves harm. We should feel good. That's what should be left in our heart is a good feeling. Just like when we have the continuity of present moment awareness, this building some momentum with present moment awareness, really valuing the inner ecology of our mind so that we're careful about like what kind of media we bring in. Because we know if I bring that in, it's going to stir up a lot of craving or it's going to stir up a lot of aversion. Is that really helpful, useful for me or for others to stir things up in that way? Well, no, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll value the balance and stability of present moment awareness more than the temporary juiciness of doing this with my mind, doing this with my attention, right? But we're not going to make skillful choices unless we're actually, unless, unless we've actually cultivated a taste for the happiness of samadhi. And now we're getting more subtle. And even more so with the happiness of wisdom. It's of even more subtle happiness, but also more healing and profound ultimately. But if we're not attentive to it, it will be very easy to be living out of our self-centered views because, you know, we feel enlivened by the craving and the kind of activity that comes out of what in Buddhism we call wrong view or self-view, self-centeredness, right? And it's just sort of the default habit in our mind. So we can, we have to learn to appreciate the happiness of equanimity, the happiness of dispassion, the happiness of relinquishing self-centeredness. Right, that that's that sort of um, kind of space that knows that things come and go, and it's not that personal. Everything comes and goes, arises and passes. Sometimes really nice experience, sometimes really difficult. You know, it's um, often taught in terms of the eight worldly winds or the eight vicissitudes of life. I'm sure many of you have heard this teaching from the Buddha gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And that, you know, these things come. And this little teaching is used because uh, it's used to talk about wisdom because wisdom isn't confused by the eight worldly winds. Because wisdom understands, yeah, stuff comes and goes and is not self. It's not really that personal. Things come and go according to so many causes and conditions. For sure, some of that, what's coming and going, is going to be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And it's not fair. For some people, there may be more pleasant and less unpleasant. For other people, more unpleasant, less pleasant. But it's still the way that it is. Doesn't mean it's fair. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do something to take care of the people who got the raw end or being oppressed or taken advantage of. It just means that right now this is how it is and I don't need to stir up my heart by manufacturing or constructing this idea that nature has made a mistake. Does it mean that it's, when we say that um, 
we're not going to interpret the moment as if nature has made a mistake. It doesn't mean on this basic relative level that something shouldn't be done. So even something like, uh, you know, where we get hurt, be stings us, you know, we can see that, we can feel the intense sting of that bee sting, but we don't have to lose, we don't have to um, get involved with some idea that makes the bee bad or the bee sting bad. We don't actually have to take care of ourselves. We don't need the duality of good and bad. And this is just a place not so much to believe as a kind of, you know, philosophy you believe in, but just more of a way to experiment. Like where you see things, where you feel moved, and just see if you can participate in life in beautiful, skillful, appropriate ways without the mind being dependent on the duality of good and bad. Because that's really the happiness of wisdom. And this is the most subtle. So don't expect it to be easy and really watch out for imitations. Oh, I know I'm supposed to be even. I know I'm supposed to be balanced. I know I, you know, we start to think, I know I'm not supposed to care about this. So then I'm going to imitate not caring. And clearly that's not the way. That's its own, you know, attachment and a cause for suffering in our own mind. And you'll probably end up bothering everybody around you too. But instead, it's like we're interested, like, well, how, like I feel moved to do something about the bee sting or do something about racial injustice or do something about the election, feel motivated. Well, how can I do that and stay connected with the happiness of non-attachment? Is there a way for me to fully participate, fully engage, without losing the happiness of that peace, the peace that's there when the mind isn't turning things into good and bad, self and other, but it's really relating with this totality of the present moment. There's a little teaching from Ajahn Sumedho. Um, uh, I don't know if people have heard this uh, teaching. It really is about this middle part of samadhi, this middle third of the path of stabilizing and developing the continuity of present moment awareness. And one way to help understand this are in terms of five mental factors. And this is described in a later text called the Vasudhi Maga, the path of purification. But these are, you know, easily understood qualities if you look at the mind. Like the mind has this capacity to connect with experience. It's a particular part of attention that can know, oh yeah, this is, this experience is being known. And uh, in one tradition, traditional text, it's like the striking of a bell and the mind connects with that initial sound. Oh yeah. And so that's Vitaka for people who want to know the Pali. 
this capacity to connect, this is being known. And then the next is vichara, to sustain, right, to not forget. That's like listening to the resonance of the bell. And then as the mind connects and sustains, it's really beginning to come into alignment with the way it is, right? To non-distractedness, let's say. And there's some joyful interest in that because there's something inherently enlivening about the present moment because it doesn't have... The only thing that's actually dead, heavy, in our experience is our thoughts and when the mind is identified with thoughts because that's actually a dead thing so I think of something like I imagine oh yeah I'm Mark Nunberg and I'm the guiding teacher at Comgram Meditation Center so there's an idea and then out of habit my mind might cling identify with that idea and then when it is sort of caught up in that idea. I'm Mark Nunberg and I'm the guiding teacher at Calm Ground Meditation Center. Well, there's no life there in a way. It's sort of a dead thing, static thing that the mind is clinging to. So when we connect and sustain with the present moment, the moment comes alive because it's not being contained by a concept. And so it's alive with change, with things coming and going, bursting into existence, falling away, disappearing. And we feel that. It doesn't take that much samadhi, that much of the capacity to connect with reality of the present moment and sustain that interest in the present moment to start to feel that enlivening quality of joy Piti is the Pali word for this other factor. Jhanic factors. So these are the five jhanic factors. If people want to remember them, connecting, sustaining, rapture, or that joyful interest. Sukha, the kind of ease, the good feeling of the heart. It's sort of like the heart sensing, in the spiritual sense, I'm home. Right, because there's a sustaining of present moment awareness, a natural joyful interest, and the heart relaxes in a contented way. Ah, this this is how it is, and that matures with this last of the five jhanic factors, akagata, sometimes often translated as one pointedness, but. We misunderstand this term one-pointedness, right? And we have this idea of like excluding, like we almost always think of one-pointedness as the mind excluding everything and just paying attention to one thing. And so I really love how Ajahn Sumedho translates the term ekagata, one-pointedness, as the one point that includes everything. And this is a really good way of understanding samadhi, the one point that includes everything. Because in this work of wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, that together is the third of the Eightfold Path we call samadhi, it's really both understanding how 
the heart, the mind can be really inclusive to the present moment, what's coming and going, really discerning the lawful, conditional unfolding of so many causes and conditions. So that's really the diversity, the inclusive diversity of the present moment. But also have this one-pointed, because that's not so much the singularity of the object that the attention is paying attention to, as much as sensing the present moment, the totality of the present moment, as this. So the mind uh, isn't fragmenting, dividing up the present moment. How does the mind fragment or divide up the present moment? Well, only there's only one way, through its thinking. So if I'm going, oh yeah, this is a cushion, my computer sitting on a cushion. Oh, that's a clock. This is a desk. This is the mic. Here's my body covered with a white shirt. So all of these words and concept and basically the construction of a story and then every perception that has been identified, perceived, recognized with words, right, concepts. Then there's liking and not liking. There's a feeling tone. The whole world, in a way, arises. But when we connect and sustain and have that joyful interest, have some sukha, that deeper settling ease, then the mind, because it feels so good, it doesn't neurotically divide up the moment. So a kagata is really that equanimity of leaving everything alone, which means the mind is starting to see things as they are. And this is really the ripening of samadhi. So we have to unlearn this idea. I mean, there are practices and really useful practices where we do cultivate an exclusive attention to a particular object, like when we do loving kindness practice. But even then, it expands, it opens up, it becomes very inclusive. So it's really bringing together the necessity of inclusive and one-pointed or um, not fragmented, not divided, unified. And that's often the best translation for samadhi, and it relates to the happiness of samadhi that we've talked about, is the subjective experiences that I feel unified, or, you know, the, the life, the subjective experience of our body and mind, our life right now, when there's a lot of samadhi, is a sense of being held, and nothing inside, nothing outside. There's a totality in that settledness. So the these five qualities really work together. Initially, we emphasize the more concrete ones to connect and sustain attention with the present moment, things in and of themselves, not the ideas, but the you know, the breath as sensation, sound as hearing, thoughts as just thoughts being known, joyful interest, 
the sukha, the ease, that pleasure, that inner wholesome pleasure of samadhi really allows the heart and the habits of the heart to leave everything alone. And that's that ekagata, that the one-pointedness, the unification. This, there's another term I wanted to bring up tonight. I think I'll have time. The suchness or thusness. I think I mentioned it yesterday in the Sunday Dharma talk. But this, uh, it really is a term that points to the um, the understanding. And this is why the Buddha talks about how samadhi leads to Nibbana. This stability of present moment awareness that really ripens with this last of the five jhanic factors of Ikagata. It, it's um, the heart, the mind can't help but see clearly the way things are. So we're cycling through at the beginning of our seven-week class. I, I talked about mundane, wise view. And so that's just this understanding that it matters, that as a human being with some reflectiveness, I realize, you know, it matters how I'm showing up. It matters how I understand. It matters how I think. It matters how we relate to my experience, right? And so we start to pay attention so that we learn, okay, so what ways of relating, paying attention are skillful, don't get me into trouble, and what ways of relating are helpful. And then we start to apply that in the whole area of sila, like how I'm relating to others and how I'm relating to the activity of my mind, samadhi. And we even then use that like it matters, there's skillful and unskillful ways, even in terms of view, where we see that any kind of self-view is problematic, is stressful. So it's not so much that I try to get myself to non-self-view, is I see over and over again how self-view doesn't really fit like a wheel that's out of true. It's not going to help if your bicycle wheel isn't round, it's going to be really impossible to ride the bike if it's not a round wheel. Some of you maybe have had that experience where the spokes are off and it just, or your tire in your car gets a bulge, it's not round anymore. Try going more than 20 miles an hour with a tire that isn't perfectly round and you know it just doesn't work. And so this is what the sensitivity of samadhi reveals is that self-view, self-centered view, doesn't actually work. It's stressful. We kind of know it, but we're so distracted and often so superficial that the we misinterpret the pain of self-view as in terms of self-view. Oh, I just need to get this and then I'll feel better. So the resolution to the discomfort of self-view is always some self-centered project. Even like we do this with Dharma, with Buddhism. Oh, I'll become a meditator and then I'll take care of this nagging existential uneasiness in my heart and because I'll become a Buddhist and I'll become calm 
and I'll become wise. So it's another self-centered project and it won't work. Everything that <clears throat> is seen as a self-centered project has to be abandoned for there to be real peace, that peace of wisdom. This is from the Dhammapada. This collection of verses in this translation is from Gil Fransdahl's book, his translation of the Dhammapada. And I'm changing the word bhikkhu, um, which uh, in some ways means monk, but more generally it just means practitioner. So I'm going to translate it as practitioner. Practitioner, be absorbed in meditation. Or we could say be collected, be gathered, unified in meditation. Don't be negligent. Don't let your mind whirl about in central desires. Don't be negligent and swallow a molten iron ball. And then being burnt, cry out, this is suffering. There is no meditative absorption for one without insight. There is no insight for one without meditative absorption. With both, one is close to nirvana, to unbinding. For a practitioner with a peaceful mind who enters an empty dwelling and clearly sees the true Dharma the way it is, there is superhuman joy. Fully knowing the arising and passing of the khandhas, of the activities of the mind and body, one attains joy and delight. For, no, for those who know, this is the deathless. So deathless is a term uh, used in the tradition to describe the, uh, the happiness of unbinding, the happiness of the heart free of all grasping. So um, early in the course, we talked about mundane wisdom, we talked about sila, talked about samadhi. So it makes sense in the last 10 minutes or so to talk about super mundane wisdom. The Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, always begin with wisdom. And, you know, it doesn't matter, it doesn't help to say, well, I don't have any wisdom, how can I start my spiritual practice with wisdom? Well, the fact that we're interested in listening to these teachings means that's the wisdom we have. To whatever degree we have a sense that something's not working in my life, that's the wisdom we begin with. Or just being curious about other ways of relating to my life. Well, that's wisdom too. So the first part of wisdom is we call mundane because it's really in this place of, you know, I think it matters how I'm showing up, how I'm living my life, and it matters to me. So mundane wisdom, where we're always going to start, is always taking things personally. We're still within our self-view. Like, you know, my life seems like my life could be working better than it is, or my life is definitely not working very well. I definitely need some other, I need some pointing out instructions, right? But it's that self-centered view, which is totally 
appropriate, totally understandable, can't really be different. So like in terms of the eight worldly winds, it means, yeah, I feel pushed around by my likes and dislikes, by pleasure and pain and success and failure and people praising me and people insulting me. I, I feel pushed around by all that stuff. And I want, I want to learn how to handle that better. That's a very appropriate place to begin a spiritual practice. How can I deal with the messiness of the li uh, of life, power stuff and gender stuff and sexuality and being in relationship and caring about this and oh my God, the suffering in the world and how can I just live with a little bit more ease, a little bit more calm, right? So, you know, sometimes people um, think that like mindfulness-based stress reduction is, you know, not really the full teaching. Well, maybe it's not the complete teaching, but it's really part of the Dharma. How to use the Buddhist teachings just to get by a little bit better than we would otherwise get by in our life. Because it's onward leading. That's the great thing about these teachings that revolve around mindful awareness and the development of wisdom. That once we kind of realize that even in the self-centered way, it really helps me live my life better. I keep using wisdom and awareness and it will lead onward to the very depths of the practice. That's what's so beautiful about the path. So we talk about the mundane, it's just interpreting the teachings in terms of how can I live a better life for me? You know, and that involves others because I can't really be happy if, you know, you're suffering or if I'm neglecting your needs. So it just helps us in the messiness of life. But as we keep cultivating, bringing more wisdom awareness to each of these three areas of view, view and intention, how we're relating to the outer world, how we're relating to the inner world. So the world of wisdom, sila, morality, samadhi, the quality of the mind, stability of awareness. The whole so-called instrument of our life, the capacity to see clearly develops over time, gradually, slowly, and the wisdom keeps maturing. So the, the deepest way to take care of myself, like this personal project of wanting to be personally happy, is to abandon the clinging to self-view. And as one of uh, Ajahn uh, Tanisaro, this uh, Western Buddhist monk, a really wonderful teacher and translator, he was uh, sharing one of his teachers, his Thai teachers in the Thai forest tradition, said to him something like, you know, when you open, start to realize and open to the, this deeper happiness, this deeper impersonal happiness, it doesn't really matter that it isn't personal, the happiness. What matters is the release of the heart is trustworthy. It feels right in the deepest sense. 
It's like realizing, oh, this is what the heart has always wanted. Even though nobody owns it, so to speak, it's not personal. A wise person wouldn't construct some kind of personal pride around this deeper wisdom, this deeper opening or spiritual realization. But it doesn't mean that that profound healing, that profound putting down of the load wasn't realized, wasn't real. It just isn't what we imagined it was. And this is really looking at the super mundane wisdom. How the part of the path that's about wise view, initially wise view is this karmic understanding that, hey, it really matters to me how I'm showing up. And then it matures into, yeah, in a sense it matters, in a sense it's lawful and conditional. That that understanding of karma doesn't go away when wisdom matures, but it doesn't it isn't self-referential. Initially, as we understand karma, that how I'm showing up matters, it's very self-referential. I'm gonna suffer if I act like a jerk, if I act out a lot of hatred. I'm going to suffer and probably other people are going to suffer. So it's understood in very personal terms. But maybe you've already noticed, for especially those who've been practicing for a while, that, I mean, it's really impactful when we so-called make a mistake, act in an unskillful way. We might notice that the heart is hurting. We might notice the mess and the, that we've caused other people. And that might cause some pain too. And at the same time, it's not personal. So we make amends, we clean up the mess, we do what can be done to fix what, what is our responsibility to fix. But there's nothing extra there, like some identity that the mind is clinging to. I'm bad, I've been bad. People don't like me, and then clinging to those thoughts that the mind can construct. There's a line from um, this Vasudhimaga that I mentioned earlier, The Path of Purification, written by a monk, Buddha Gosa, I think in the third century um, current era, uh, so a good 800 years or so after the time of the Buddha. And he has this really pithy line, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. Doing is, but no doer can be found. And this is the thing, when wisdom matures, there's still this devotion to non-harming, there's still this devotion, even the Buddha modeled like this devotion to samadhi. He'd go off and do his retreat, he'd go off, do his walking meditation, his city meditation, cultivating the stability of present moment awareness, cultivating the integrity of action, non-harming, right, to the nth degree, as much as a human can do through paying attention and experiencing the happiness of sila, samadhi, panya, 
But presumably for the Buddha and for other awakened beings, there's no ownership of that bliss, of that happiness, of that goodness. No body, no part of the mind constructing a somebody who owns it, who has it, because then there'd be somebody who could lose it. Right? So this is the the deeper super mundane wisdom is all about escaping the cycles of suffering. And the psyche cycles of suffering really depend on wrong view, self view. And that's what matures um, through developing the three parts of the path. This is some words from uh, one of the very important teachers in my life, Joseph Goldstein. He wrote, or <clears throat> it was in one of his Dharma talks uh, that he gave on the Satipatthana, the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness. And Joseph said, as long as the strong reference point of self is the central understanding of our lives, as it is for most people, we spend an endless amount of energy trying to gratify the self, defend it, hold on to it, protect it. All of this very potent karmic activity is revolving around something that isn't even there. This is the great power of delusion in our minds. So that's called, that little teaching we got from Joseph is called pointing out instruction, right? And uh, often when Joseph would give this kind of teaching, he, he liked to quote, I think it's pronounced Wu Wee Wee, this uh, Dharma teacher who said it, he gave this little powerful image, like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. Right? Like all this agitated, self-centered activity, which animates most of our life, right, is all about satisfying somebody who isn't there in the way the mind imagines that the self is there. We're trying to solve a problem, a self-centered problem, that doesn't really exist in the way the mind imagines it exists. But we can't just tell the mind, hey, hey guy, you're screwed up, right? We actually have to see over and over again, just in a very practical but subtle way, that self-view doesn't help anybody, doesn't solve any problem, doesn't contribute to anything in any way. That's what allows that deeper part of the development of wisdom to flourish, is seeing over and over again that... Um, yeah, the unnecessariness. And what this is where samadhi comes in because when the mind has that beautiful stability, unification, continuity of present moment awareness, because it, it feels so good, then the mind, the greed, hatred, and delusion, the mind isn't getting activated so much because it feels good already because of the stability of present moment awareness. So then, when the greed, hatred, and delusion, even in subtle ways, gets triggered, 
then wisdom has the opportunity to see the little arisings of greed, hatred, delusion as nature and not self. So many, many times, like in a good sit where we're feeling pretty solid and stable, and then a little memory or a little sound in the room or a little pain in the knee or something arises and triggers the deep roots of reactivity, right? But now that expression of greed or hatred is seen from the point of view of a mind that's really stable, clear, dispassionate, not taking things very personally. So it sees the habit to react to knee pain or to react to a disturbing sound in the room or painful memory or whatever it might be as just something, just another thing in the forest, another thing in the mind, another thing in the present moment. Oh yeah, it's just this. And it, it's relearning how to relate to phenomena. Right, we begin with these activities of the body and mind always being the ground for clinging, for grasping. Whatever is coming and going, the mind is just reflexively going to cling to what it likes and doesn't like and ignore what it finds neutral. But with practice, regardless of the feeling tone, regardless of the perception, the mind realizes doesn't have to grasp. It can still engage, it can still show up, can still be a good human being without the grasping. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.